Well, good morning again. So good to be here with you among the saints, knowing that we are a part of something infinitely bigger than ourselves. It's astonishing that we are a chosen people predestined before time, names inscribed in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, to have been purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ with an infinitely costly death as our substitute, to have been regenerated by God the Spirit, awakened through the gospel, and now here we sit. And we are all familiar, aren't we, with the dangers of pride and the virtues of humility in the Christian life. We're all familiar with those things. But you see, what we may not realize is that pride and humility, these are not merely moral issues. You see, pride and humility, what we have to understand is that they are, these are eternal and these are great commission issues. And what I mean is, whether you are proud and thus God minimizing, or you are humble and thus God exalting, literally determines where you will spend your eternity. And you see, the thing about pride that makes it so deadly and dangerous is that it literally runs in our blood. It courses through our veins. You have to understand, we we enter into the world pre-contaminated by sin. We enter into the world already polluted by sin. And although pride is not the only manifestation of that sin, it is the most prominent manifestation of that sin. We all enter into history warring against God and His kingdom. Because see, that's, that's the thing about pride. It's, it's not merely being a little self-focused or kind of braggy. Rather, it is to contend with the living God for His supremacy. Pride is a pair of idolatrous boxing gloves contending with God for the heavyweight championship title belt of the universe. When we talk about the dangers of pride, we are talking about a conspiracy. A conspiracy to commit the most heinous crime ever committed in history, which is to take something that's not God and to love it and to worship it and to try to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And yet when we're talking about pride, the thing that we are worshiping is ourselves. And you see, that's what makes pride such an eternally significant issue because what you have to understand is in a very real sense, God's goal in history is to humble the suicidal pride of man and to exalt the supremacy of His Son, Jesus Christ, who will tolerate no rivals and who will give His glory to another. And the reason I'm telling you all that is because the crushing of the suicidal pride of man is exactly what we see in our text this morning. You remember well the scene. A man named Belshazzar is the king over Babylon and this particular night he throws a big drunken shindig for his officials and his girlfriends. And you remember that during the party too drunk to think reasonably he gets this bright idea to fetch the cups and the goblets which Babylon had stolen out of the temple in Jerusalem. Vessels only to be used for the worship of Yahweh by the way. And not only does he want to drink wine out of those vessels but even more than that he wants to use those vessels to offer toasts to the Babylonian gods. It's, it's despicable. It's, it's disgusting. It's this blasphemy. And yet you remember, don't you, God is not silent. 
God intervenes, and he intervenes in the most creepy way possible, namely by sending a floating, dismembered hand all of a sudden to appear and to scratch a message of judgment onto the wall in front of the entire party. And the wizards and the wise men and the conjurers, they show up with their little spell books to try to figure out what it means. And they have zero idea what this thing means. And so they are left with no choice but to call in Daniel, who's an old man by this time, well into his 80s. And not only does he interpret the writing, which was a message of judgment before that, he reminds Belshazzar of his heinous crime for which he stood guilty before God. And his crime was this. God is majestic, God is supreme, and God is sovereign. And even though he knew that the living God was not to be trifled with, Daniel lays the charge in verse 22 before him, which says, You did not humble your heart. And the writing was, as they say, on the wall. And Nebuchadnezzar that night was murdered. The entire Babylonian kingdom crumbled to the ground. Because you see, that's just the thing about this chapter. It's not really about a floating hand that that scribbles graffiti on a wall, although there is one. And this chapter isn't even really about Belshazzar alone by himself. Rather, this chapter exists to show us that Belshazzar is one little tiny picture of what God is going to do to all human pride in independence at the end of the age when his son comes to reign and establish his kingdom. You see, God will not share his glory with another. And this chapter right here is the down payment to prove it. One day all the kingdom, human kingdoms of pride are going to fall, mark my words. And what that does for us is produce holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And, and, and although there's lots of things I want you to see from Daniel chapter 5, there are two things in particular that I want you to walk away with. I want, I want, you, I want you to walk away with number one, confidence, and number two, caution. I want you to have confidence from this chapter, confidence that God will indeed crush all human pride when the Messiah comes to reign. And number two, caution. I want us to have a renewed, urgent caution in our hearts against the monster of pride that lurks within our very souls even at this very moment. Because mark my words, no one is immune. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text two motivations, two theological motivations for humility that protects our lives, that pleases our God, and puts Christ on display as supreme. That's where we're headed. Two theological motivations for authentic humility that protects our lives, that pleases our God, and puts Christ on display as supreme. That's where we're headed. Let's go to the scene. Let's begin first with the drunken party and the severed hand. The drunken party and the severed hand, verses 1 through 6. The scene, the party, begins in verse 1. Look at the text. It says, Belshazzar made a great feast for his thousand nobles, and he was drinking wine before the thousand. Stop there. Already this is a little odd, isn't it? 
Why? Because for the last four chapters, we've been seeing and hearing about the antics of a king named Nebuchadnezzar, but now all of a sudden we are staring in the face of a man named King Belshazzar. We get to chapter 5. There's no notice. There's no historical context, no explanation of how we got here, just here he is. What you have to understand is that this chapter here, this is decades after chapter 4. In fact, this chapter is 23 years, four kings, and one assassination after King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, and after him, it was just never the same. Babylon continued, or immediately began to spiral out of control and come unraveled. It was never the same after he kicked the bucket. He reigned, he, he, after he died, his son reigned for a year. Until his brother-in-law murdered him in cold blood, taking the throne, he reigned for four years until his teenage son, Labashi Marduk, took the throne, who was apparently so incompetent that he was murdered by a man named Nabonidus, who was married, ironically, to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, who we'll see soon. But you see, the problem with Nabonidus is that he was one of those free-spirited, hippie-type guys who wasn't really interested in politics. Rather, what he was really interested in was worshipping the moon god of Arabia named Sin. And so, he, what he does is... But, but, but here's the problem with that. Is that Marduk was the chief god of Babylon. Marduk was the one that Babylon focused on. And so, what does Nabonidus do but go on a pilgrimage 500 miles away to join a commune worshipping the moon god of Arabia? And who does he set on the throne in his place as his representative? That's right, his slimeball son named Belshazzar, who ruled Babylon as a vice president, second in command. And get this, on this very night, both he and the entire Babylonian kingdom would crumble to the ground in disaster, which means which means we know the very year of this chapter. In fact, they kept such good record of things in those days that we know the very date. This is October 12th, 539 B.C. Congratulations if you have an October 12th birthday celebrating the fall of the Babylonian Empire. This is 66 years after chapter 1 when God topples Babylon to the ground and gives it to the Persians exactly like he said he was going to do back in chapter 2. And on this particular night, Belshazzar throws a party. And he probably shouldn't have, to be totally honest. There was literally nothing to celebrate They had been losing ground to the Persians for months. In fact, at this very moment, the Persian army was waiting outside like ninjas in the shadows with their weapons and their war paint about to storm the gates and break into the city. And yet maybe to boost morale, he throws a party. On the guest list were a thousand officials from the Babylonian government his harem of his wives and concubines, and they were going to party like there was no tomorrow because little did they know there would be no tomorrow. So here they are, the leaders at the highest level of the Babylonian convention, and they had no idea that God of Israel was about to crash the party. And you notice this interesting detail at the end of verse 1. It says, at this party, feast, celebration, Belshazzar, get this now, was drinking wine before The thousand. Notice, he was not drinking booze with the thousand. He was drinking wine before the thousand, in front of the thousand. This is what kind of guy this is. Both his life and his kingdom are hanging by a thread. And yet he's showing off his beer-guzzling skills like a jock at a frat party. 
And with the wine and beer flowing like Niagara Falls, it did not take long before all the people at this party became absolutely drunk. The, the parties in that day were well known for turning into the most profane kinds of orgies filled with just unspeakable iniquity. And yet this particular night, it would be worse than an orgy. It would be drunken idolatry. An evening of blaspheming the living God. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, under the influence of the wine, commanded to bring the vessels of gold and silver which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, took out of the palace which is in Jerusalem, so that the king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines should drink from them. What is this? Here he is, drunk out of his mind, and it says, under the influence of the wine, commands that the vessels stolen from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in so that they could drink wine out of those vessels. And you know what these vessels are, right? These are the most sacred vessels and goblets on the face of the planet because they were to be used only for the worship of Yahweh in the temple, confiscated by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there were going to be nothing more than priceless party cups for this drunken beer bash on Belshazzar's last night on the face of the planet. And notice why. What was the reason why everyone at the party should have a golden cup? Not just to be inebriated in style, but because he wanted to take these vessels devoted only to the worship of Yahweh, and he wanted to use these to offer toasts to the Babylonian gods. Don't believe me? Look at verses 3 and 4. Then they brought the vessels of gold, which they took from the palace of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and they drank wine from them. The king and his wives and concubines drank wine in them, and they drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. I mean, I don't know how this reads to you. But this is one of the most deliberate acts of blasphemy found in the pages of Scripture. I mean, he was deliberately profaning and mocking and defying the living God to his face. This was a graphic way of declaring the supremacy of the Babylonian gods over the God of Israel. And you might think, yeah, but he was drunk, though. All right? I mean, he, he didn't know what he's doing. They cut him a little slack. He didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, but you see, that's just the thing. There wasn't anything in his heart here that wasn't already there before he got drunk. He hated God before he was drunk. He hated God while he was drunk. It's just that the wine only made him less willing to hide what he always wanted to do anyway. And so with goblets held high and spilling with wine, they sang songs to the gods of, of, of Babylon, Marduk and Nabu and Adad and Bel and Nergal and Inanna and Enlil and Enki and dozens of other Babylonian gods fashioned by the perverted hearts of nasty men. And we mock this, and we should. We should be very careful here. We should be very careful here because any time there is a passage in the Bible that describes idols and false gods, we should take that opportunity to think about our own hearts and the possibility of idols in our own lives. Because the reality is, most, not all, but most, the sin and the sorrow And the chaos in our lives comes because somewhere along the way, the God of the universe got replaced. 
so the question is, how do we do a spiritual x-ray test in our souls for our own idols? How would we know if in our life something is threatening to take God's place as the treasure of our soul? How do we know? How do we know this? Well, we would know. We would know because when you are all alone by yourself and no one can see you except God in those moments, the question is, what do you love? What do you crave? What do you desire? What do you hunger for? In those moments, the question is, how would you complete the sentence? I would be truly content and fully satisfied in my life if I only had... Fill in the blanks. Because you see, painful though it may be to hear... The God that we truly worship is what we think about most when we are in solitude. But you see, the best news in the world is that the cure, the cure, the blessed gospel, Christ-exalting cure for all the idols that bring chaos into our lives, get this now, the cure for our idols is to cultivate a gargantuan view of the glory of God from the pages of Holy Scripture. In other words, the more glory you see of who God is, the more you will be liberated from the idols that entangle you. You see, we we harp on you in a really nice way. We try to inspire you to meditate on Scripture, not because it makes God happy with you, but because it makes you happy in God above all things. And when we're happy in God... All the pleasures our idols pretend to offer begin to lose their deceptive appeal. And you see, it's moments like this with Belshazzar and this act of defiance and blasphemy that we kind of just want to know, don't we? Why doesn't God say anything? Why, why, did, why is he silent? Why doesn't he intervene? Okay, dish out a little justice for once, would you? And you see, that's just the thing about this chapter. You see, this chapter exists to be a sneak preview and a theatrical trailer of what God is going to do to all human pride and idolatry at the end of the age when His Son comes to establish His kingdom. Look at verse 5. Then suddenly, in the moment, the fingers of the hand of a man appeared and was riding before the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the palace of the king. And the king saw the palm of the hand which was writing. And we can imagine the scene, can't we? A woman screams, a glass breaks, music grinds to a halt, the dancing stops, the music and the laughter and the singing turn to silence. Why? Because more Scary than a horror film, a nightmare comes to life. What Hollywood can only create with a computer and CGI actually happened in human history, namely a disembodied hand, a floating appendage, a, a living prosthetic limb of judgment appeared and scribbled graffiti on a wall. The word is out, Belshazzar. It is over for you. The living God will not be mocked. And they found this room, by the way. 
They, they found this room in 1969. Archaeologists found this room in Iraq, and they are certain that it was it because it was fancy, it was huge, big enough for a party like this. And, and get this, they even found portions of a wall made out of plaster, and this plaster wall just happened to be right next to the throne of the king. He could see this thing over his shoulder, etching a message of judgment into the wall. And when he saw it, he responded exactly how someone in that position would respond, namely with terror and with trembling. Look at verse 6. Then the king, his complexion changed and his thoughts terrified him. And literally it says, the knots of his hips were loosened and his knees were knocking together. In other words, his body did what bodies do when they're going into shock. His legs became like jelly. His face went pale. thousand terrifying thoughts went through his head all at once. His limbs are literally shaking. He is literally having a fainting fit. And a very drunken Belshazzar all all of a sudden becomes very, very sober in an instant. Which brings us next to the failure of the sages and the council of the queen. The failure of the sages and the council of the queen, verses 7 through 12. So here's Belshazzar, drunken and terrified. Notice notice what he does when he's painted into a corner. This is going to look very familiar to you. Look at verse 7. The king called with a shout to bring in, here we go again, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king answered and said to the wise men of Babel, Every man, any man who shall read this writing and make known to me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and a necklace of gold around his neck, and he shall rule as third in rank in the kingdom. Did you see that? Same song and dance that Nebuchadnezzar used to do to bail him out of his jam. He calls his dream team of wizards and warlocks and fortune tellers and and palm readers to come in and interpret the writing, offering a very handsome reward. You read the writing. You tell me what it means. I'm going to give you a purple robe. I'm going to give you a necklace of gold, and you're going to get the third highest rank in the kingdom. In other words, you're going to get a promotion and a pay raise. And yet, with predictable results, look at the end of verse 8. King Belshazzar sat on a wall. King Belshazzar had a great fall. All the king's wise men and all the king's men couldn't put the kingdom back together again. Look what it says. They were not able to read the writing or to make known to the king the interpretation. We could have predicted this. We did predict this. We did not need a crystal ball to see this coming. We knew this would be the outcome. See, this is now the third time we've seen something like this in the book of Daniel. Which means it's a theme, a woven sub-theme throughout the book of Daniel, namely the absolute bankruptcy of the Babylonian religious system, or any system for that matter, that does not seek God as the highest treasure of the soul. See, Daniel's a warning to us. Maybe a better way to put it is, it is the persuasive evidence That God, through His Word, is absolutely sufficient for the most tangled complexities of life and the soul. Because mark my words, anything outside of Christ in His Word that we seek to solve the highest dilemmas of life is no different than us reading a horoscope or calling the psychic hotline. 
And, and what I mean is, how many marriage problems? How many parenting issues? How many sin struggles and, and the most complex issues of the soul do we try to solve outside of the truth of God's Word? How many major life decisions do we make based on our based on our feelings or our emotions or our crystal balls of intuition because you have to understand that the book that you're holding in your hands is a bottomless ocean of life-giving wisdom and power. And mark my words, the more you get that book absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul, the more your life will begin to change. But these men with their lucky charms... And their bag of tricks, they were literally powerless to decipher the message, whatever the message was. And in verse 9, you can tell Belshazzar was really banking on these guys to come through for him because when they don't come through, he, he comes completely unraveled for the second time. He's just falling apart here. So you imagine the scene. There's a creepy writing on the wall. Everybody's drunk. The king is a mess. The wise men of Babylon are just kind of staring at one another, shrugging their shoulders, having no idea what to do. But then it's in verse 10 where the plot begins to thicken. Look at verses 10 and 11. The queen. The queen, because of the words of the king and his nobles, entered into, literally, the house of feasting. The queen answered and said, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts terrify you, and let not your complexions change. In other words, would you get a hold of yourself? Verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, uh, insight, and wisdom, like the spirit of the gods, was found in him. And the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, hint, hint, appointed him chief over the magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans. And finally, a voice of reason appears. And who is it? Verse 10 tells us that it's the queen, not Belshazzar's wife, but Belshazzar's mom. Because you remember Belshazzar is second in command, ruling the kingdom as the vice president of Babylon. Nabonidus, the real king of Babylon, is 500 miles away, worshiping the moon god in the deserts of Arabia. And this queen of Babylon is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she literally, immediately begins to move in and take control of the chaos. Maybe she heard the tumult from down the hall. Either way, the word spread about the writing on the wall, and she knows exactly who to call when you have a paranormal experience. She informs her son that right now there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now, theologically, she's way off. Right? She's, she's totally off. But, but from her pagan, polytheistic point of view, that was the only explanation for Daniel's abilities. Namely, that the gods, I guess, had channeled their power and ability through Daniel to solve the deepest dilemmas of life. And not only that, and here's where the hint comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, who built the kingdom, the greatest kingdom in history, in her reckoning, he appointed Daniel to be the president over the entire religious system of Babylon. I mean, you can tell mom is really trying to hold her son's hand here because in verse 12, she gives her son four reasons why he needs to call Daniel right now, wake him up, and get him here to read the writing. Reason number one. Look at verse 12. You need to get Daniel here because of his extraordinary spirit and wisdom and insight. 
You see, the reality is Daniel had knowledge and insight about things that were simply unexplainable apart from divine intervention. There's no way that Daniel could know the things that he knew unless a God had revealed them, which, of course, he had. Number two. You need to get Daniel on the phone right now because he, it says, interprets dreams. We saw that in chapter 2, right? He was the go-to guy when it came to dream interpretation. Reason number three. It literally says he explains riddles. He solves mysteries. The, The major questions of life that no one else could figure out, Daniel could figure out because he had God and he had his word. And number four, I love this, you should call Daniel, and it says he solves difficult problems. Literally in the Aramaic, it says he loosens knots. Daniel wasn't just sitting in a corner doing crossword puzzles and Rubik's Cubes. You have to understand, Daniel, for years, for years, had been giving life-giving, hope-giving solutions to the most tangled complexities of life and the soul. And do you know how she knew all this? Do you know how she knew about Daniel's reputation and why he could do what he could do? Do you know why? It is because for the last six decades of his life, Daniel had unashamedly declared the supremacy and exclusivity of Yahweh. For the last 60 years of his life, Daniel had been pointing lost Babylonians to Yahweh as the only hope for the humanly irreparable condition. He spoke the wisdom of truth in a land full of folly. And I have no question at the center of his message, because it's the center of this book's message, was the Messiah And the King, the Son of Man, who one day would come and make all things right when He would return and establish His kingdom. See, the point is God made a name for Himself in Babylon, and Daniel was one of His instruments to do so. And I just want you to know, you can have that. You can have that. That is literally there for the taking. What? What is there for the taking? Like Daniel... You can be a conduit of transforming grace in the lives of other people. You can be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand, mediating the hope and the wisdom and the power of God to people wandering in the darkness. That is literally possible for you, because here's the thing. To be a great evangelist, you don't have to be a great evangelist. All you need is to be acquainted with and infatuated with the glory and the excellencies and the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all things because the more beauty you see of who Christ is, the more bold you will be to proclaim Him. Which brings us then to the reading of the writing and the murder of the King. The reading of the writing and the murder of the king, verses 13 through 30. So, drunk though he may have been, Belshazzar was at least sober enough to take mom's advice and call in Daniel, verse 13, probably in the middle of the night. Daniel gets woken up, ushered into the ballroom, and I don't exactly know what Belshazzar was expecting, but clearly he was not impressed with Daniel. Here he is, this small, shrunken, elderly man in his 80s, the senior citizen standing before him, and he speaks to him in terms that are less than complimentary. Look at verse 13. Are you, Daniel, who my father, the king, are you, Daniel, from the exiles of Judah, who my father took out of Judah? 
uh, yeah, like 60 years ago. But, but for the last six decades of his life, he had been working at the highest levels of the Babylonian government. I mean, what about, how about a little respect here, Belshazzar? And yet, see, that's just the thing, probably wanting to intimidate him. He wanted him to know no matter how long he had been around, he was nothing more than Babylonian property. Verses 15 and 16, he gets right to the point. He explains the severed hand, the writing on the wall, the failure of the wizards to make any sense out of the writing. And and whether he wanted to or not, whether he really wanted to do this or not, verse 16, he offers to Daniel the same reward that he offers the others. Do you get this right? You tell me what it means? You get your purple robe, you get your little golden necklace, and you get the third highest rank in the kingdom. And he would have been crazy not to take the job, right? The president offers you the job as the speaker of the house, the third highest rank in the government. By all means, you take the job. Or do you? Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts remain for you, and give your presence to another. I love this. But I shall read the writing to the king, and I shall make known to him the interpretation. In other words, I don't want your purple bathrobe and your little golden name tag. You keep that for yourself. But I'll still read the writing. I'll gladly do that. I'll do that for free. But what's interesting is before Daniel reads the graffiti and tells him what it means, he realizes that that Belshazzar needs both a history lesson and a theology lesson first. In other words, for Belshazzar to really truly appreciate the writing on the wall, he needs both a lecture and a rebuke. And school begins in verses 18 and 19. Look at the text. You, O king, the Most High God gave to Nebuchadnezzar your father the kingdom and the greatness, and the majesty, and the glory. And because of the greatness which he gave to him, all the people's nations and tongues were fearing and trembling before him. Why? Because who he wanted, he killed. And who he wanted, he kept alive. And who he wanted, he exalted. And who he wanted, he made low. See the history and the theology? The history is Nebuchadnezzar. The theology is that God was absolutely sovereign over him. See what Daniel said? The Most High God. The Most High God who reigns and rules and governs the affairs of human history gave to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, every single thing he ever owned. And that's true for all the kings In history, all the kings, tyrants in history only had the power they did, only had the throne they did, only had the military they did, only because the God of the universe gave it to them. That includes Kim Jong-un in North Korea and his regime of terror. That includes that big shot out in China who persecutes our comrades. And anyone else in the world who thinks they're calling the shots, who thinks they're holding the cards, the reality is the Most High God has temporarily loaned them their power. And unless they repent of their atrocities and yield their lives to King Jesus like any other unbeliever, they will pay without mercy for their crimes. May we tremble, may we pray. But then Daniel digs up a painful memory that Babylon would soon rather forget, namely the time about 23 years before this, when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. 
Verse 20, look what it says. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar lost his place in the world. Daniel rehearses the history. Nebuchadnezzar's narcissistic pride and vanity got so swollen that he began to suspect he was a divine being. He, he, misread, the, he misread the signals. He thought his, his power, that his, his, his glory, his privilege, he thought that was evidence that he was like a god. When in reality, it meant nothing more than it was a gift from God. And he lost everything. Deposed from his kingdom, he lost his majesty because in a divine moment, God intervened. Verse 21, God crushed the tyrant's pride and gave him temporary dementia for seven years. Like King George III, Nebuchadnezzar absolutely lost his mind. Just one day he ran away naked in the woods, barking like a dog, eating grass on all four like a cow. And he stayed that way until he learned the most valuable lesson in the universe, which was, verse 21, the Most High God rules over the kingdom of men, and He appoints over it anyone He darn well pleases. See, you just need to know that right there. That text right there is the deepest cure for pride. And that is the deepest cause for humility, namely the fact that God rules absolutely everything. He calls the shots. He pulls the strings. He holds the cards, His house, His rules. Every single moment of our lives is under the jurisdiction of the God who governs everything that comes to pass. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, you need to remember that everything, I repeat, everything is working out for your good. And one day, mark my words, God will appoint over the kingdom of men His own Son who will come and He will reign. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, it will never be destroyed. It will never perish or be taken away. You see, the future reign and kingdom of Jesus Christ is our assurance that everything in our lives is going to be okay. And if Belshazzar is sitting there wondering, Daniel, what does any of this have to do with the situation at hand? Well, why are you telling me this? Daniel pierces his soul with an application like an arrow. Look at verse 22. But you, here it is, but you, his son, Belshazzar, you did not humble your heart, even though you knew all of this. Belshazzar, you fool. You fool, you knew this. You you watched this happen, and yet you learned nothing. Belshazzar thought he could walk through the security gate with a bomb of pride strapped to his chest and that he wouldn't get caught, and yet this bomb blew up in his own face. In verse 23, here's the charge. Here's the main accusation. Here's the crime that provoked God to send a severed hand to scratch a message of judgment into the wall. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they brought the vessels of gold from his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drink wine from them. And you praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see and they do not hear and they do not know. And here it is. And the God who holds your breath in his hand 
and all of your ways belong to him, you did not glorify. Daniel is sticking a bony finger in Belshazzar's chest, theoretically speaking. I mean, this is a straight-up rebuke in front of a thousand people. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Have you lost your mind? Who do you think you are? You, you, you drink booze out of the most sacred vessels on the planet, and you use them to offer cheers to the Babylonian gods. And, and here's the real issue. The God who holds your breath in his hand and all of your ways belong to him, you did not glorify. That right there is the essence of pride. Pride is not merely to be a little braggy or to think kind of highly about yourself. No, pride at the end of the day is not to glorify God for the supremely valuable treasure that He is. The height of our arrogance, the root of our haughtiness is that we do not tremble before the God who holds our very breath in His sovereign, omnipotent hand. That is pride. And by the way, verse 25, Daniel interprets the writing. Here's what it means. Look what he says. And this is the writing which was written, O king. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. That's what was inscribed on the wall. That was etched in the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And, and here's the thing that's really interesting about this writing is that the wizards, the wise men, they could read the letters. They could read the words. It was written in Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic. They could read the words individually by themselves. But you see, with the words all together, they had no idea what it means. It just looked like a bunch of words kind of strung together. Because see, that's the thing about the writing. It was a puzzle. It was a bunch of puns. No one was ever going to figure it out unless the God who sent it revealed it, which he did to Daniel. And what's super interesting is that every single one of those terms, mene, mene, tekeir, ufarsin, every single one of those terms is a term of business used in the marketplace to measure the weight or value of an object. It'd be kind of like saying pound, pound, ounce, kilogram. Or penny, penny, nickel, dime. It was a way of valuing the weight or or value of an object. And since we're talking about Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom, the quality was poor. Verses 26 through 28, Daniel interprets the cryptic message, and no doubt it confirmed Belshazzar's deepest fears. Look at verse 26, Mene. Mene, to mene something means to number or count something. God has numbered your kingdom, Belshazzar. And it's over for you. Tekel. Tekel means to weigh something in a pair of scales. God has weighed you in the scales, Belshazzar. And he has found you deficient. Worthless junk that you're never going to use. You throw it away. That's what God's going to do to him. And then finally, my favorite, the best for last, Upharsin. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. I love this. If you're one of those people who likes puns and you think they're kind of funny, this is a pun. Here's a, here's a, you, have, you have biblical justification for using puns. It's the last time you're ever going to hear me say that, okay? So, here's the pun. To fares is to divide something. 
But what's really interesting, to, to divide it, to tear it in half right down the middle. But what's really interesting, those very same letters, Ferres, that you use to spell the word divide, are also the very same letters that you use to spell the word Persian. They sound exactly alike. Ferres, to divide. Faras, Persian. God has divided your kingdom. And He has taken it from you, and He has given it to the Medes and the Persians. And so what was very odd and and tragic and hilarious all at the same time, after Daniel interprets the writing, even though Daniel told him he didn't want it, verse 29, Belshazzar goes through the ceremony anyway, gives him his purple robe, his little golden necklace, declares him third in rank in a kingdom that just in a few hours from this moment would crumble to the ground in disaster. And then verse 30, later that night, Belshazzar is murdered ushered into eternity where he stood face to face with the very God he mocked and blasphemed at a drunken cocktail party. And you see, that's exactly why this chapter is in our Bibles. Not not merely because Belshazzar was a proud man, but because Belshazzar is a prime example of what God's going to do to all human pride and independence at the end of the age when Christ comes to establish His kingdom. Because the thing about Christ is that He will tolerate no rivals and He will not share His glory with another. And I just want you to know that if you do not belong to Jesus Christ this morning, if you have not yielded your life to Christ, if Christianity is more cultural for you, if there really hasn't been that time when you have yielded to Jesus Christ, or if you are living in defiance to Him at this moment, I just want you to know you're in the same boat as Belshazzar. The writing is on the wall for you too. God is angry. Psalm 7 says so. God is angry every day with the wicked. And you need to know that the jaws of hell are open and gaping and ready to swallow whole all those who persist in their pride and independence. And I just want you to know, it will not work for you to be your own lawyer and try to represent your own case at the end of the age with your good works and accomplishments. It will not work. No one is getting in by their own good works. See, the wrath of God that burns against sinners will not be deterred by a few good works. And yet, having said that, there is a way. There is a way where the wrath that sinners deserve may have been placed upon another. And by that I mean Jesus Christ who came to this planet, who took the wrath He didn't deserve for the sins He didn't commit, and He doesn't merely offer escape from eternal hell. Rather, He offers adoption, adoption as sons and daughters of the living God through His death. He offers reconciliation. What He's offering for all who will humbly repent and trust Him as the highest treasure of their lives is fullness of joy and pleasures forever at His right hand. And so now very quickly, in a flash, two reasons for humility. Two reasons for humility that 
protects our lives, pleases our God, puts God on display. Reason number one. We can and we should be humble because God is matchless and supreme. We can and should be humble because God is matchless and supreme. Isn't that what Daniel said to the king? The Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and He appoints over it whoever He darn well pleases. And you see that right there is the cure for our pride and the secret to humility. Namely, when we come to grips with the sheer, raw majesty of God from the pages of Holy Scripture. Number two. We can and we should be humble because God is sovereign and rules over your life. We can and should be humble because God is sovereign and rules over your life. That's exactly what Daniel told the king, the God who holds your breath in His hand and all of your ways belong to Him. You did not glorify. What does that mean other than that God is sovereign and rules all things? Because you see, and I close with this, the root of our pride is that we want the control. And the effect of our pride is anger that we can't have the control. And so the path, the sweet path of joyful humility is to depend on the one who has the control, who controls every moment of every event, always and only for the glory of His Son, who reigns and rules and leads and loves and who guides and who governs everything that comes to pass. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give thanks to you that we can handle such pearls, that we can see such excellency, such glory in the pages of Scripture. Oh Lord, help us to be a humble people, which doesn't mean merely gritting our teeth and squeezing our fists and and, and trying to bear our own flesh by ourselves, but give us the kind of humility that only comes when we see you for who you are. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for the book of Daniel. May it fill us with holiness, hope, courage, and perseverance. In Christ's mighty name we pray.